Rich kids, half of the kids have already left. <laughs> so the other half may go. Thanks for joining us for worship. You know, we just uh, took a couple of minutes and took our offering. And um, I just wanted to say thank you, church, for your generosity. The Bridge has become a very generous church, a very kind church. And I've just, you know, since we planted the Bridge, we've seen this grow and develop. It's really encouraging. And, uh, you know, we take an offering on Sunday morning. A lot of you give online. And uh, that's awesome. Um, We started the year with all bills paid from last year. We started with a little surplus from last year. And as the year has continued, um, our giving has always outpaced our expenses. And uh, it's just really encouraging to see your generosity to the bridge. So I just want to say thank you. And I just thought, you know, I just should tell you once in a while uh, the, the good things that are happening behind the scenes. Okay, here we go. We're going to talk about a biblical perspective on marriage and sexuality. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield tells her story of her dramatic conversion to Christ. Rosaria was a tenured professor in the Center for Women's Study at Syracuse University. She and her lesbian partner were members of the Unitarian Universalist Church, where she was the coordinator of the welcome team, which was also the gay and lesbian advocacy group. Up to this point in her life, Rosario said that the only Christians she knew were intellectually impaired. It's kind of exactly what I thought when I was an atheist. Up to this point in her life, um, the Christians she knew did things like sent email, hate e- sent hate mail, or they carried signs at gay pride marches that said, God hates fags. If you can kind of see where she might develop her opinion. Rosaria Butterfield's view of Christians began to change when she met a pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd. And I'm just going to read a quote from uh, her book. And here's what she said. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my hosts at the door and pulling out my two gift bags, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time God was dead and that if he was ever alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. 
I believe that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the people. That really made sense to me in my college years. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not as escape not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, When the evening ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since this beginning, the journey of which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying the scripture and my heart. Ken knew at that time I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. What do you think of that? Bring the church to people. Rosario Champagne Butterfield did become a committed follower of Christ, and she has had a tremendous impact in advancing the kingdom of God. God is still in the business of transforming people for his glory. And it shows what can happen when God's people live for Christ and seek to love like Christ. So, last weekend we started a series. Two parts, part one last week, part two this week, a biblical, ver- biblical perspective on marriage and sexuality. So I spent a lot of time last week laying the foundation of a biblical marriage, and I'm going to spend some time in review because it's so important to understand what I say today. And I'm going to need another light up here. Somebody could get, thank you, Mike. Um, so here are the main ideas from last week. And this is review. Uh, first of all, our view of marriage is heavily influenced by worldview. Our view of marriage is heavily influenced by worldview. Uh, then we said a biblical worldview begins with God. And this is where I'm coming from. This is important to understand. It begins with God. It's from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Bible doesn't argue the existence of God. It doesn't prove the existence of God. It begins with God. It assumes, it assumes uh, the existence of God. Thank you very much. Now I can see. And... Um, It says God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. 
He is the designer. He had a plan, and he made everything. Okay? It starts with him. On the other hand, a secular worldview begins with culture. Uh, Culture isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. It's just the way it is. It's just the world we live in. It's, it's the thought, thinking of the world we live in, and especially without God. A, a culture without God, or a culture that doesn't think God has influence or is somehow active these days. So this would be a secular worldview, and um, it focuses on culture. Humanism is a dominant force in our culture. It puts man at the center of the universe. Really kind of holds on to man as the measure of all things. Does it make sense to me? Does it seem reasonable to me? Is it what I want? Is it what I choose? Man is at the center. He's the measure of all things. There is a passage in the Old Testament that reminds me of this kind of perspective. It's Judges chapter 21, verse 25. The scripture says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, this was before there were kings in Israel. God was to be their king. And there was a time when God wasn't honored, and they didn't have a human king either. And everybody, another translation says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This is kind of a perspective of culture. You just give it your best shot. This is what I think. This is what I like. This is what I choose. Certainly, there are good principles that come from culture. A lot of those principles are even consistent with Scripture. But not everything. Um, So, now we come to another uh, idea, main idea that we talked about last week. A biblical perspective on marriage begins with God. So, biblical worldview... Uh, begins with God, and biblical perception on marriage begins with God. And we noted that God created the male and the female, and we take this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Simple reminder that God is the creator. He's a creator God, and he made the first humans. He made human beings. They were designed by him. They were made for him. And uh, he made them male and female. He was very distinct. This isn't just the result of evolution. It was, he distinctly designed the male body, and he distinctly designed the female body. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I would just say is that being, God created them in, the, in his image, and uh, that means he has a very high view of man, very high view. And with a high view of man comes high expectations as well. And, you know, it's amazing to me when I learned, when I thought about what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What separates me from the animal kingdom? I'm not just, you know, a step above being a gorilla. God, God created me to be able to think and to reason and to create some things I can't create something from nothing. Um, To appreciate art and beauty and to do math and to do science. There's all kinds of things being created in the image of God that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And God has a very high view of man. 
God is also the one who designed and established the marriage relationship. Marriage was God's plan. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We looked at this last week. That is why man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is the foundational verse in all of the Bible for all of the society, for all people from the beginning. Okay? Humans are to leave their parents. Husband and wife, male and female, are to be united. And that concept there is the idea of coming together in a covenant relationship with agreement and promises. And God is the witness. He was the witness of the first marriage. And if you track through the Old Testament, you'll see God is the witness of marriage. And he expects people to maintain their covenant that they made before him. And... uh, to be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh and establish a a, a unique relationship, an exclusive relationship. It's more than just sex. It definitely included the sexual relationship. Then we looked at last week that Jesus um, confirmed God's plan for marriage in, in the New Testament. I'm not putting the scripture aside. I just laid my Bible on the chair. I'm not putting scripture aside. Jesus confirmed God's design and plan for his marriage. Matthew 19. We looked at this last week. So we come to the first century. Jesus is walking the earth. Several hundred years have passed. Thousands of years have passed since Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And Jesus said, when he's questioned about marriage and divorce, haven't you read? He replied, Jesus replied, That at the beginning, so Jesus is going to go back to the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus is going to quote Genesis 2.24 and he's going to affirm it and confirm it right here. And whatever was said in the beginning is now true with Jesus. He's putting his stamp of approval on that. And then he adds, therefore, what God has joined together. You see, marriage is about God joining something together, joining a couple, male and female, together. Let no one separate. Jesus adds that. Man isn't to mess with the covenant relationship of marriage. It's an exclusive relationship, and and no one better mess with it. Okay. Next, we have the Apostle Paul confirm God's design and plan for marriage for the church. We looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 33, and I'm just going to say there, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse uh, 31, and he just reaffirms what Jesus said. And Paul is speaking to the church. It certainly applies to us today, the church. This is what marriage is. This is what God's plan was. This is the way he designed it. And then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect his husband. When you think about this, God had a plan. If you go back and read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, God had a plan from the beginning that the marriage relationship 
would be a model of Jesus and the church, Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. And as Jesus loves the church, husbands are supposed to love their wives. That's God's plan. And that's why marriage is so confusing today, because people in our world do not see that. And they don't see what it is to respect and love your husband all the time. There's a great confusion about marriage in our world today. Next, we looked at a biblical perspective on sexuality. It begins with God, not our culture. God blessed the sexual relationship in marriage between the man and one man and one woman. And we saw that in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. He created them male and female. He brought them together in marriage. And then he blessed them. He put a stamp of approval on him. He put his favor on them. And uh, he wanted them to thrive and increase. Um, he, he wanted their lives, he wanted them to do well. He wanted his very best on them. And so God blessed the sexual relationship and the marriage between one man and one woman. By the way, God has never blessed any other sexual relationship God sets sexual boundaries around marriage between one man and one woman to protect that. We looked at Leviticus 18.3. And this is the Old Testament. This is uh, from the law. And God said, you must not do as they do in Egypt. Remember, the Israelites just came. This is the whole Exodus series, uh, first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus that we just completed. They had been in Egypt. And there was an Egyptian culture there. And he said, you must not do sexual practices like the Egyptian culture. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, because that's where you're going. Don't follow the culture of the land of Canaan. Do not follow their practices. So I went through a list for you last week. Here's some of those protections for the marriage relationship. No sex with close relatives. No sex with your mother. No sex with your father's wife, if it's not your mother. No sex with your sister. No sex with your father's daughter. No sex with your granddaughter. No sex with your father's cousin. No sex with your neighbor's wife. Um, no sex between man and man. No sex with animals. No sex with your mother's sister. No sex with your daughter-in-law. No sex with your brother's sister. No sex with a woman and her daughter. Okay? Those were protections to keep the marriage between a man and a woman uh, holy and honored. They were good protections. And then we ask, and this is how we concluded last week, what is the appropriate response to people who disagree with the biblical perspective on marriage and sexuality. We looked at several passages, but one of those was Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. God called his people to love their neighbors as, as themselves. And Jesus uh, very definitely uh, proclaims this in the New Testament. It's the second greatest commandment. The first greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. 
And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus carried it a step further, remember? And he said, you've heard it said to love your neighbor, but I say love your enemies and pray for them. That would be Jesus' response to people who disagree with you on your perspective is to love them. Ken and Floyd demonstrated this marvelously with Rosario Champagne Butterfield. Okay, now we're getting into today's passage, today's uh, message. And we have three questions. The first one is, what is the biblical perspective on same-sex sexual activity? What is the biblical perspective on same-sex sexual activity? Here's a passage that we looked at last week. Uh, Leviticus 18, verse 22. Scriptures say, do not have sexual relationship, sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. There's not to be sexual activity between male and male. That's what this passage teaches. Okay? And it's clearly speaking of sexual activity without going into detail of what all that includes and uses the um, illustration of the kind of sexual relationship a man has with a woman. Okay, the next passage is Leviticus 20, verse 13. We didn't look at this last week. It says, if a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. One of the things the law does, it reveals the character of God. There are laws in the Old Testament that had a purpose that sometimes are called ceremonial laws. And when Jesus died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was rent or cut in two, he fulfilled those laws. But God's moral character never changed. This isn't one of those laws about what you're to wear or what you're not to wear. Uh, he says... If a man has sexual relationship with a man as one does a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their heads. And here's the point. This passage identifies this is sinful behavior, okay? And one of the criticisms, uh, or sometimes people use to sort of reinterpret the Bible, is to say, well, back in the Bible times, they were talking about where uh, there was violence involved, where one man overpowered another, and this isn't a loving, kind, and caring relationship. And now this is about both people involved. Both of them have done what is detestable. And, for example, in the case of rape in the Bible, an innocent person was not held accountable. It was only the one who violated and this, both people are involved, both people participated, and both people are accountable. Okay, we're going to jump to the New Testament to one of the most difficult passages, Romans chapter 1. It's going to be in Romans 1, 18 through 32. We're going to walk through it kind of slowly. And in this section, Paul describes the human race kind of from the beginning. So it's big picture. And that what we want to do sometimes is we just narrow in on one specific group. And, of course, the whole same-sex issue is what everybody narrows in on here. But you have to keep in mind the context. This is the world from the beginning. It includes the Jewish people. It includes everybody else, all 
Gentiles, all right? We start with chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There is in the Bible this concept of the wrath of God. That's judgment. And there is in the Bible the concept that the wrath of God is coming, that it's future. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a final judgment. And that is true. But this is not exactly what this is talking about. This is talking about God's wrath being revealed through history. Okay? So, and it's for people who suppress the truth. They're given information and they suppress it. Okay? Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Key passage, verse 20, for since the creation of the world's God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, next slide, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What's that passage talking about? It's saying since the beginning of history, Within creation itself, God is sending out sort of messages about who he is, what he's like. Doesn't tell you everything there is to know. Doesn't tell you how to be saved from the penalty of sin. But God is sending out messages. God is sending out a witness to people that there is something behind the creation. This creation just didn't pop up, nor did it evolve over billions of years or millions there is a creator who designed it, who brought beauty to this world, who created an animal kingdom, and who created human beings in his image. And all this passage is saying is, God has given out information, and people can choose what they do with it. They can say, I think that's stupid, I don't like it, doesn't make sense to me. And God is saying, people are without excuse. That there's enough information in the world to know that there's something behind the universe worth finding out about. Okay? Let's look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they had this information about the, the, from creation, they neither, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, empty. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's kind of a process they're going through here and they're making choices to disregard the possibility of a true and living God. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So if you go back to the beginning, God was present with his people. And they sinned. Sin messed up everything. And um, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were in a paradise situation. And Adam's descendants knew about God. And yet people began to make choices to move away. And they began to come up with their own ideas on what they wanted to do and how they thought about religion. Maybe they could have their own gods. And they could pick things that they liked. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. Sometimes there were statues of humans. Sometimes they were 
um, idols uh, that represented birds and animals and reptiles. And we just went through the book of Exodus and saw all the things the Egyptians did and all the things that they worshipped and all the things they cared about. And what we're talking about is a whole process of humanity, not just one group, okay? And let's go on to verse uh, 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over. This is an important concept. God gave them over. God sort of let them go and do what they wanted to do. Sort of pulled back. Okay, this is, a, this is the approach you want to pursue? Okay. Hands off. I'm going to let you make your mistakes. God gave them over to sinful desires because they chose them of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They made some choices here. They had correct information about God, but they exchanged it for a lie. And worship and serve created things. That's, that's a problem. Worshiping created things. Putting creating things up here and say they're the most important. Now, we, we may not, in our culture, at least people in this room, bow down before a statue in their home. Um, but it's easy for us to push other things to the top. What's the most important thing in your life? Is it God? Something else? Something you want to do or the way you spend your time you can even put people as number one could be a could be a child could be a, your your spouse they exchange the truth about god for a lie and worship and serve created things that's a problem worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator okay and let's jump this is the most crucial passage for us to look at and we go to verses 26 and 27 um yeah, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Shameful lust, in God's eyes, even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships, relations for unnatural ones. What are, what are natural relations and what are unnatural ones? Sometimes critics of the Bible or people who want to revise the Bible say, well, natural relationships are what you're oriented to. What is your orientation? If you're oriented to same sex, then you should pursue same sex relationships. That's not at all what this passage is talking about. Natural relations in the scriptures that this passage is talking about refers to God's design in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That's natural, the way God designed it. The unnatural would be what God did not design. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their heir. So they get to pursue this lifestyle. They get to take this course. does not honor God. And they're going to face the consequences what would that be? Well, if they don't repent or if they don't place their faith in Christ and have their sins forgiven, they face what all, all people face, the final judgment. All people face that. All sinners face God, okay? And we go to 28 to 32. There, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. 
So this process just keeps going. God giving them over, lets, lets them pursue their natural course, and the result is a depraved mind that, uh, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Now, please see we're not picking on a group of people. This is all of humanity. It's a very broad view of sexual sin, but, uh, sins. Look at these sins now. Uh, wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Those, those are all part of our world, whether they're about same-sex sins or not. And have you experienced greed? Have you experienced evil? Let's go on to the next slide. They are full of envy. Have you experienced envy? Uh, murder. And Jesus said, if you hate, you have murder in your heart. Strife. Have, have you been divisive? Um, deceit. Have you ever deceived anyone? And malice. Hate. They are gossips. Have you ever gossiped? Slanders. Have you ever slandered, said anything evil of someone? God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Have you ever been arrogant or boastful? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Did you ever disobey your parents? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. All they know, God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not, not only to continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Our Supreme Court voted five to four to approve. Um, please notice, verse 32, all they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. And that's true. The wages of sin is death. That's what that's saying. And it's all sin. All sinners. Okay? All right. I'm going to jump to a couple more passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It's another key passage. And the Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are lifestyles. And uh, yes, they're on a list of sins. And this kind of lifestyle person will not inherit the kingdom of God. And um, it's not just same-sex sexually active people. It's people who are sexually immoral. That includes people who violate everything about sexual purity. Whether it's pornography, adultery, fornication, which is premarital sex, idolaters, those who put things or people before God, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, people who steal, nor people, greedy people, people who get drunk, slanderers, 
So those are speech issues. Swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a list. And Paul is just reminding people, hey, apart from Jesus Christ, there are people going to go to hell. All right? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And that was what some of you were. Because those Corinthians had done everything on the list. And some of them had committed those sins. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And what is he doing here? One, he's reminding them that there is forgiveness. They have been forgiven. And they are not to live like they did before. They are to be transformed. They are to be changed. And that's not like perfection. It's a process. But that's not what their lifestyle should be. That old way, there should be change. There should be a process of growth and a process of conforming to the image of God. Okay, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Sandwiched between this passage and the passage we just looked at is this, there's a whole series that says um, the body was made for God or for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So there's a purpose for your body and the purpose is for God, okay? And then we come to verse 18, flee sexual immorality, porneia, like comes from pornography, but it refers to sexual uh, sin, and it really refers to all kinds of sexual sin. It would include same sex. It would include adultery. It includes premarital sex. um, Everything possible outside of marriage. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So there's kind of an extra impact on sexual sin. It's kind of double. It's a sexual sin against yourself and against God. Verse 19, do do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so he's just reminding the Corinthians, don't you know? Holy Spirit lives in you. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are not your own. And if you were a follower of Christ, this definitely applies to you in a big way. You were bought with a price. You belong to God. You belong to Jesus Christ. And so honor God with your bodies. It makes a difference how um, you handle your life sexually. Now, what if you're not a Christian? Well, yeah, it still makes a difference. But you still have the same outcome without Christ, whether whatever kind of sinner you are, doesn't make any difference. Wages of sin is death, and that's eternal death. Okay, we've waded through a lot of difficult passages. The next two parts are short. Secondly, what is the biblical perspective on same-sex marriage? I hope it's fairly clear where this is going to go, but God designed marriage for one man and one woman exclusively. We've been this over this several different times. It's an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. Jesus affirmed this, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And um, it's really crucial to understand that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has affirmed this marriage. It's not just, it's not gone out of style. Uh, It's not out of date. 
There's not any new and improved version of marriage that includes same-sex marriage. Okay. Next, same-sex marriage violates God's design and plan for marriage. Same-sex marriage violates God's design and plan for marriage. There is no one man and one man becoming one flesh in the Bible. It's not there. Um, there are no loopholes in the scripture on this. There is no one woman and one woman becoming one flesh in the Bible. It's not there. There are no loopholes. Thirdly, I said that would be short. Thirdly, what is a biblical perspective on same-sex attraction? This is a new issue that we talk about. We didn't used to talk about this subject. Probably uh, 10 years, not so much, 20 years ago, I don't know if we talked about it at all. Okay, what is a biblical perspective on same-sex attraction? First of all, sexual desire is a normal, God-given desire. God created human beings with a sexual desire. It's pretty normal. Um, think in terms of desires are God-given. Uh, we also live in a fallen world, and um, we are not Adam and Eve. We don't start with a perfect world. We start with a fallen world, and even our physical bodies um, have gone through generation after generation. We don't have perfect DNA. Uh, we don't have uh, perfect ancestors. And so uh, sexual desire is normal and God-given. Next, sin starts in the mind with desire. And I'm going to look at James chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. And, and the Apostle James says this, when Tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, and here's what I want us to see, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and entice. There's a process here. Humans have desires. Having a desire doesn't make you a bad person. It's what happens with that desire that can change things and impact you uh, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, the idea of a, 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 a desire to do something that dishonors God and this temptation comes to fruition, then after desire has conceived, that's where it happens right there. The desire connects with an idea or a plan for next step. It may be in the mind or it may be in the real world. Then after desire is conceived to give birth to sin, that's the process. It gets to sin. It doesn't start with sin. It gets there. Uh, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Physical death? Sure. Spiritual death? Yes. The idea of separation. And it leads to spiritual death apart from Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Problem is, we can get deceived or confused. And that's why we lose the battle sometimes, because we get confused in temptation. Um, 
Now, here's what I want to say. We can't always choose what we are tempted by. We can choose how we respond to the temptation. Okay? Sometimes we think there are good temptations and bad temptations as if my temptations are better than yours. You know, making it relative, sin is relative. No. We can't pick what's going to tempt us. We can pick how we respond to it. Um, then we go on to Jesus said that sexual sin uh, begins in the mind, and that's at Matthew 5, 27 and 28 passage. Jesus said that sexual sin begins in the mind. Matthew 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. They all knew that. The Jewish audience understood that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said sexual sin starts right here. And that's when a temptation in your mind carries out with the thought process. It's when imagination takes over and you begin to do the things in your head. The desire is not sinful. It's what you do with that desire in your mind, in your imagination. Jesus said, uh, you've committed adultery with this person in heart, or you've committed sexual sin. In that, that's the key idea. Sexual sin starts in the heart. So, key point here, same-sex attraction becomes sinful when it is carried into the thought life, and the Bible calls it lust. Okay, last one. Same-sex attraction in and of itself is not sinful. Maybe a surprise for some of you, maybe new for some of you. Same-sex attraction. Just because somebody has an attraction, that doesn't make it wrong. It's how they live. It's the choices they make. Um, married people have responsibility to manage their lives, to manage their own sexuality. Married people require discipline. Everything is not fair game for married people. Single people require discipline for their lives. Everything is not open game for single people. There's discipline required for both. And that means there are times you have to say no. Um, same-sex attraction becomes sinful when it is carried into the thought life. And same-sex attraction in and of itself is not sinful. There are no right or wrong temptations. Okay? They all can lead to sin. Okay, a couple of quick reminders. Things you already know. Reminder number one, God loves and forgives. God's love and forgiveness is available to every person, no matter what their sexual orientation. So, please remember that. You already know that? Jesus was a friend of sinners. Pastor Ken and Floyd became friends with Rosario. And because of that, she was able to begin to understand Christianity more accurately. Reminder number two, God hates heterosexual sin as much as he does homosexual sin. 
Heterosexual sinners are not better than homosexual sinners. We are all sinners. Thank you very much. Reminder number three, the church was created for sinners. Remember this, the church was never uh, started for good people. Church was created for sinners. Church has always been for sinners. And the church is in the business of transforming people. Last one, reminder number four. Our mission is to help people, all people, no matter what their sexual orientation, connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And I know you already know that because that's why I said it's a reminder. And let's keep this thing as the main thing. The Supreme Court did not outvote God 5 to 4 on June 26, 2015. The government can make same-sex marriage an inalienable right. But God has not changed. And humans are still accountable to God. The main thing is God has called us to live for him. And God has called us to help others to find him. And that's what our focus needs to be. Let's stand to pray. Father, I want to thank you uh, for the scripture. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us. You've told us so much about who you are and what you've done and your desire for us. Thank you for creating us in your image. Most of all, God, we want to thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. We just acknowledge that we don't deserve it. We've never deserved it. We don't deserve it today. We'll never be good enough to deserve it. Thank you for forgiveness. And may we as your church um, love people, all people, all kinds of people, people with different needs. May we as a church help people connect with you to take time and effort and energy to communicate who you are and what you've done. May you use us as a church to draw people to yourself and to help people connect with you. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.